Welcome to the City Reach Baptist podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. So great to have you with us today. And we are looking at this question of why not us? Uh, Have you ever heard the, the expression, the good old days? The good old days. Now, often we use that expression, the good old days, because we're thinking back to this pristine time where things were perfect, where things were wonderful. The good old days were never as good as what we imagined, just to let you know. But that's what we, we use that expression because as we look at our circumstances or we look at life now, it, you know, it doesn't seem all that great. And so we talk about the good old days. When it comes to Christianity and the Christian faith, I think we can tend to think about this time in the past, the good old days where, you know, and back in the good old days, you know, everyone came to church. Back in the good old days, you know, people would heed the gospel and they would get saved radically. That was back in the good old days. But now that's not the case in the secular world in which we live. But it's interesting, when you actually do a study of Western society, of Western culture and Christianity, you'll find that rather there be like these good old days where everything was perfect and now everything, you know, is awful. What you'll find is that in the history of Christianity in Western society, there have been these ebbs and flows. There have been times definitely where the tide has been in and the waves of the Spirit have been lapping against the seashore. But there have also been times in Western culture where the tide has been out and where it seems like nothing is happening, where it seems like there's absolute spiritual barrenness. Now, I was reading earlier this year a book by Michael Green called When God Breaks In, and it's the history of revival from Pentecost to the present. And he speaks about one such time in uh, you know, recent time when the tide was out in the 18th century, the 1700s. This is what he writes. He says, Um, Despite the wealth of the country, that's despite England's wealth, under its Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walhall, British society had sunk to a low level. First, Britain was known for drunkenness. This was true of the nobility as it was of ordinary people. Most business was conducted in taverns. Squires boasted of being six-bottle men, which means that they could drink six bottles of port in a single sitting. Secondly, closely associated with drunkenness was the immorality of the age. The king, the prime minister, and the prince of Wales were all living in open adultery. Laborers even sold their wives in the cattle market, and fornication was everywhere. Theatres constantly put on indecent plays, and the literature of the day was steeped in filth, from the gross obscenity of Fielding to the snide nastiness of Stern. A third characteristic of life in the early 18th century was cruelty, cockfighting to the death, Bear baiting and the torture of animals seem to have characterized the population. There is a record of bulls and dogs being, get this, dressed up in fireworks and then ignited and let loose for the amusement of the populace. But the greatest attraction was public executions. There were some 253 offenses on the statute book for which you could be hanged. They included small offenses such as stealing a loaf of bread or picking a pocket. 
Uh, there was no drop for hanging in those days, so poor victims, women and children, as well as men, writhed in agony at the end of the rope for half an hour or more before expiring. Some, um, at all events, public hangings were a major entertainment for all classes of society. Now, um, uh, Green goes on to write, to what extent was the church salt and light in a society as corrupt and demoralized as this? Well, the answer must be not at all. The church was like the Laodicean church rebuked in the book of Revelation, neither hot nor cold. Rationalism seemed to be the outstanding characteristic. The educated clergy hated enthusiasts. Enthusiasts were people who were like enthusiastic for Jesus, like true, true believers. They, they called them enthusiasts and they hated them. They paid little attention to scripture and seemed to care nothing for Jesus. The lawyer Blackstone is reported to have heard most of the preachers in London and claimed that none of the sermons he heard contained more Christianity than the writings of Cicero. The faith of the Reformation was completely abandoned. Let's go back to the good old days, eh? <laughs> That's what it was like in 18th century England. The tide was out. The tide was out. But just as when the tide goes out and it looks like nothing is happening, we know that even though the tide is out, deep, deep out in the waters, there is something happening. And we know eventually the tide will come back in. And the tide did come back in in the 18th century. Through the preaching of John Wesley and George Whitfield, who had been ignited by personal re regeneration, they went out and preached the gospel in the open air. They went out on horseback and preached the gospel to the masses. Thousands of people became Christians. And the evangelicalism we know today is largely a result of that great awakening that happened in the 18th century. Can God do it again? Lord, why not us? Why not us? Now, I don't pretend to know the sovereign will of God. I don't pretend to know his sovereign will. It, you know, God might be causing the secularism that we see in Western culture right now and to bring about his end time purposes. So eventually the tide will come in with the return of Jesus and that would be the best, would it not? Well, the glory of the Lord would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. I don't pretend to know, but I do think that to be a faithful church, we need to be people who say, Lord, why not us? To put ourselves in a posture and in a position where God could use us as his people in such a way and so that's what we're asking over this month is we're praying we're seeking God we're saying Lord if you want to do it through anyone do it through us even while the darkness increases and sin increases all around us let us be a people let us be a movement of your spirit Lord and fire for you in our great city of Adelaide. Now to answer this question, what we're going to do is on Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at Jonah, a prophet in the Old Testament. So please open up your Bibles, if you have them, to the book of Jonah. On Sunday evenings, we're going to be doing a topical series on, uh, through basically following our mini missions. And so tonight, Pastor Carl is going to be speaking about prayer. So I'd encourage you to come out to that. He's going to be talking about the unseen mission of prayer. But on Sunday mornings, we're going to be looking at this beautiful, beautiful um, piece of literature in the Old Testament, uh, this, the writings of this, this 
this Old Testament prophet Jonah. And so just open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1, and we're just going to get straight into it this morning. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. We read this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amity, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So God here commissions his prophet Jonah and says, Jonah, I want you to go, go to Nineveh and actually speak against, tell them how their evil has come up before me. Now, in the same way that the word of the Lord came to Jonah and God commissioned Jonah, Jesus has commissioned his church in Matthew Uh, 28 verses 19 to 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So just as Jonah has been commissioned by the Lord, we as the church of Jesus have been commissioned by Jesus. I want you to notice something before we move on in verse two is, notice this, that when God sends a prophet to actually bring a message of judgment and to tell people about their wickedness, it's not an expression of his anger, but rather it's actually an expression of his love. In sending Jonah to Nineveh, God was wanting Nineveh to repent, to turn back to him. You know, when, when a Christian friend comes to you or you hear a message And it's a really convicting one. That's not because God hates you. That's actually because God loves you. He's wanting you to turn around. He's wanting you to turn to Him. He's wanting you to heed the Word of the Lord and turn back to Him. You know, as disciples of Jesus, we have to go out and share the good news. We've got good news to share that Jesus saves. But before we share the good news, we have to share the bad news. That people are under the judgment of God because of their sin. And that's why they need to turn back to Jesus and believe and trust in Jesus. Well, God says to Jonah, go, and let's look down in verse three and see what Jonah did. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. You'll notice this phrase appears twice in this verse, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which was a port city, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down in it to go with them to Tarshish. Notice this, away from the presence of the Lord. So God says, go, and Jonah says, no, (laughs) no. So why not us? Why not us? Why not me? Well, often it's because of the same thing. God says, go, and we say, no. We disobey. Now, when I think about Jonah, I think there's probably a number of excuses that Jonah had that he used to justify his disobedience. Excuse number one, it's too hard, Lord. It's too hard to go. I mean, Jonah was having to leave Israel and he was having to go to Nineveh and that would be a journey of 550 miles. That'd be pretty uncomfortable for Jonah. You know, one of the excuses that I use, and maybe this is an excuse that you use for my disobedience and not going, is, Lord, it's just too hard. I mean, you don't know my, my schedule and how busy I am with my family and my work, and just to fit another thing in to, 
to be your witness or to even think about how I could use my life to share the message of the gospel with others is just, it's just too hard, God. Well, a second excuse that I think Jonah might have had was, it will do no good, God. I mean, notice in verse 2 that God says that he is to arise and go to Nineveh, that great city. And Nineveh was the amazing city of the time. I've got some pictures here just to show you. Uh, Nineveh had this amazing wall around it that was so thick that you could have three chariots could ride around on the wall. Uh, that middle picture there is one of, they had five gates entering into Nineveh. And that's one of the gates uh, of, of Nineveh that was still standing. Get this, was still standing to 2016 because Nineveh is a historical place. It was located outside of Mosul and it was destroyed in 2016 by ISIS, that gate. It was standing up until that time. Um, the other picture there is a picture of one of the kings of Nineveh. And Nineveh had been founded by Nimrod, who Genesis tells us was a, a very ruthless person. And the people of Nineveh had taken on the ruthlessness of the founder. They were ruthless people. They were polytheists. They worshipped many gods. So you can imagine for Jonah, he probably thought, God, you're wanting little old me to go all the way to that big city and tell them that they're under God's judgment? It's not going to do any good, God. Now, that's an excuse that I often use to justify my disobedience. It's like, you know, Australians, they're not open to the gospel. Australians don't want to talk about spiritual things. Australians, you know, they're so happy with all of their wealth and everything, their big screen TVs and all of that sort of stuff. They don't want to talk about Jesus. That's interesting. Uh, Nick Van Ruth is running a course on Monday night here at the church if you want to go. Uh, 7 p.m. in my office. It's called Evangelism for Ordinary Christians. And we were talking about this. And Nick was saying that uh, the statistics out there are that people are actually more open to talk about spiritual things than what we think. <laughs> One in five people, if you ask them to read the Bible with you, they will say yes. But even, even so, you know, uh, people are no more open in Nepal or in China or in Africa or in India than they are in Australia. The Bible says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. And so it takes a miracle of God to open anyone's eyes to the gospel. Well, the third, I think the third, and this is, man, this is, this is one that, that I need to think about. This is the third excuse and this is, I just don't want to. I just don't want to. You know, I think for, for, for Jonah, uh, he probably thought, man, he was going to flee to Tarshish. And Tarshish was this port city. It would have been a very vibrant city to be a part, a part of. And I think for many of us, me included, I think oftentimes I say no because I just don't want to. I'd much rather enjoy my creature comforts and live my comfortable life away from the presence of God. God, I'm, I'm, great. I'm grateful for salvation. I'm grateful that I'm not going to hell. But God, let me just live my life for myself. Let me just enjoy my life and, 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 and let me get to go to heaven when I die. But just leave me alone and let me do what I want to do with my life. I don't really want to be on, on involved in your mission. So God says, go, and Jonah says, no. But here's the beautiful message of the book of Jonah. 
it's this, is we run, but God runs after us with his relentless rescuing love. (laughs) We run, we flee from the presence of God, but God runs after us with his relentless rescuing love. Look down in verse 4 in Jonah. We read, But the Lord hurtled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God brings this storm into Jonah's life. You know, there are two types of storms that will come into your life. One type of storm is just a storm that comes about and God allows because we live in a fallen world And in the midst of that storm, what God is trying to teach you is He's trying to mold your character. He's trying to teach you perseverance. He's trying to teach you endurance in the midst of that storm. That's one type of storm that God can bring into your life. And you're to consider it pure joy when you encounter trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. But there is a second type of storm. And this is one that God brings directly the storm of his discipline to get his wayward children and to woo his wayward children back to himself. Notice in verse 5 it says, Then the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. It's amazing in the midst of a storm how people become really, really spiritual. How people turn to God in the midst of the storm. And they will pray all sorts of prayers to God in the midst of the storm. God! If you just deliver me from this, I will do this. You fill in the blank. I'll go to Bible college and be a pastor, as if that's the worst thing in the world. Or I will go and be a missionary, or I'll do something, God, to get you off my back. (laughs) And notice that they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea in order to lighten it for them. It's such a bad storm that they're getting rid of their financial profits. But let me ask you a question. Where is Jonah in the midst of the storm? Look down in verse 5. It says, But Jonah had gone down deep into the inner part of the ship, and he had lain down, and he was fast asleep. So there is this storm that Jonah's disobedience had caused, and the sailors are, are now caught up in it, and it is threatening their lives And they are panicking. And where is the prophet of God? He's asleep in the boat. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said to the church, he said, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. What does light do? But it exposes darkness. What does salt do? But salt has a preserving effect. Part of the role of the church in society is to light up the darkness and to have this preserving effect in society. And I think that maybe some of the storms and crises that we see in our culture have come about because of our disobedience to not go. Maybe, maybe that is the case. And rather than being salt and light, where are we? We're asleep. We're asleep. I think of the words of Keith Green. Do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? 
The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because she's asleep in the light. How can you be so numb not to care if they come, but you just sit back and keep soaking it in? Oftentimes we are very good at pointing out at what is out there in the world. Look at their wickedness. Look at what they're doing. Look at this. Look at how confused they are. And we judge them. And maybe, it's, maybe part of it's because we're not playing our role as Christ's ambassadors in the world. Well, notice in verse, um, in verse 6, it says, So the captain came to him, that's Jonah, and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Isn't this ironic? Here is the pagan captain coming to the prophet of God and rebuking him and telling him to wake up and to start praying. If there is anything that we need to do as a church in the midst of the cultural crisis that we see around us, in the midst of the storm that we see around us, is we need to be on our knees praying to God. Notice in verse 7, it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Proverbs 16 verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, and what is your occupation, and where do you come from, what is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Notice again that the pagans are actually saying to Jonah, What are you doing? They have more fear of God than Jonah does. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? that the sea may quieten down for us, for the sea grew more and more raging. I can't say that word. Can anyone say that word? Tempestuous. There we go, tempestuous. I said it wrong in the first, first time and people came up to me afterwards and about five people came up to me. So, so I'm just hedging my bets this time. And Jonah said to them, he said, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. See, finally, Jonah has got it. His sin has been exposed. God said, go. Jonah said, no. He fled from the presence of God. God brought a storm. And what has Jonah finally done? Jonah has surrendered, surrendered. If you're fleeing from the presence of God and God has brought a storm into your life, what you need to do is you need to surrender to God. Surrender to Him. Surrender up control to Him. Quit raging against God and surrender up control of your life to God. Well, verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. And the reason they rode hard is because they knew that it was certain death for Jonah. If they hurled him into the sea, he would die. So they tried to row hard to get back to land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more. What, what's the word? 
tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Notice, whereas before they were calling out to their pagan gods, now they call to the one true God, the Lord, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life and let us not, uh, lay not us on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. Have you ever done that to your brother? You know, in a, in a swimming pool, you pick him up. And throw him into the sea. This is what they did. They hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. Many commentators believe that this is when these men became God-fearers. They really trusted in, in the Lord for themselves. And so Jonah, God has said, go. Jonah has said, no, he's fled from the presence of God. God has brought a storm into his life, but he surrendered. He surrendered to the Lord and now he is alone in the midst of the sea, sinking beneath the waves. But here's the beautiful message of the whole Bible. And this is the message of Jonah, is that we run, but God runs after us with his relentless rescuing love. Jonah is completely helpless. He cannot save himself. He is going to drown. And what does God do? Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. <laughs> this is the most beautiful expression of grace and love of God. Jonah cannot save himself. And God comes to his rescue and appoints this great fish to come and swallow him up and rescue him. This is the rescuing, relentless love of God. We run and God runs after us and he rescues us. Now, obviously, I think that probably what some of you are thinking, you're probably thinking, is, did this really happen? I mean, is this scientifically possible for a great fish to swallow up a man? And they survive three days and three nights in the belly of a fish? Is that scientifically possible? You know, many people in the past, they, they, they you know, tried to think about what type of fish this might be. Would it be like a, a whale shark or a blue whale? Or, or you know, try and may, maybe it was like, uh, you know, Shamu. Probably not Shamu because Shamu would have eaten Jonah. But, it, you know, they're thinking about what type of fish might this be? Well, it's interesting, Jesus actually speaks about this in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. Look at what Jesus says. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign, a miracle from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign or a miracle, but no sign or miracle will be given to it except the sign or miracle of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus himself believed in this miracle that, G that Jonah was a literal person and that this fish rescued Jonah. But actually, Jesus says something even greater than it just telling us that this thing actually occurred. Jesus actually tells us that what happens here was actually something that pointed forward to him. You see, this book isn't a whole heap of collection of different stories. It's one story with one hero and his name is Jesus. 
And therefore, Jesus is the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah. You see, just like Jonah, who was thrown into the sea in order to satisfy the judgment of God, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to satisfy the judgment of God. Just like Jonah, who by his sacrifice for the sailors that were saved, through Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, many people are saved from all nations. And just like Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, Jesus was in the grave three days and three nights. But Jesus, Jesus and Jonah aren't just similar. Jesus is the greater Jonah. You see, unlike Jonah, who was a sinner who was running from God, Jesus came from God to run after sinners. And unlike Jonah, who couldn't command the wild storm to be calm, Jesus said, be still, and the wind and the waves were still. And unlike Jonah, who couldn't save himself, Jesus saves, and He was Jonah's Saviour. Jesus is the greater Jonah. You see, we ask the question, why not us? Why not us? And it is true. The reason that we may not see a powerful move of His Spirit is if we disobey, God says, go, and we say, no. But I think the greater reason why not us, why it's not us, is because like Jonah, we may have forgotten or never been gripped by the relentless rescuing love of God. Before God could save Nineveh, God needed to save Jonah. Before God can reach Adelaide, God needs to save us from our self-righteousness and our religiosity. You see, you look at those excuses that we have, and if you understand the relentless love of God, if your heart is gripped by the relentless love of God, it blows apart those excuses. Think about the first excuse. Put it up there, brother. The first excuse, it's too hard. You know, if Jesus sacrificed for me, then I should be willing to sacrifice for others. Or what about the second one? It will do no good. You know, often we believe that because if you grew up in a Christian family, you somehow believe that you were somehow more open or you had some sort of special thing with God or, or maybe, you know, you were, you were more easy to save than anyone else. Let me tell you, you were not. Every single one of us were just desperate. We were in the ocean. We were drowning and we needed a Savior. We needed someone to come and pluck us out of the water. And it's this religiosity that we hold on to that actually makes us think that it's no good. Because if we truly realized how gracious and good what God was for us, we would realize that there is no one beyond His grace. God can reach anyone. He can reach anyone. And finally, I just don't want to. When we realize the rescuing, relentless love of God, we'll think, what a privilege. <laughs> I want to tell everyone everywhere about Jesus. I want to shout it from the rooftops. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Just imagine, just imagine you saw coming this huge catastrophe coming towards Adelaide, a huge firestorm coming, burning up all the trees over the hills. What would you do? 
You would run and you would tell them, there is a way of escape, there is a way of salvation. Jump on this bus, you can be saved. See this, when we're gripped by the relentless love of God, that's what we do. Jesus saves. And so for God to use the prophet Jonah to reach Nineveh, he first had to save Jonah from his religiosity. Does God need to save you and me from our religiosity? You know, when I think about the 18th century, it's really interesting. It was a very religious period. Even though there was all of this, um, all of this stuff happening in the culture of adultery and drunkenness and, and cruelty, the church was right at the center of everything. And God needed to speak down into people's hearts and he needed to save them from their religiosity and show them the beauty of his grace. And he did that with John Wesley and George Whitfield. Now, I've, many times I've told you the story of, um, of uh, you know, George, uh, John Wesley. Let me tell you the story of George Whitfield. It's pretty amazing. John Wesley and George Whitfield, they went to Oxford and they were part of this club called the Holiness Club. A very rig- rigorous, very, very religious, very devoted and, um, and it says, and uh, Michael Green in his book, uh, When God Breaks In, he writes this. He says, the most famous recruit to the Holy Club was George Whitfield. He was the son of an innkeeper in Gloucestershire and he attended Pembroke College as a servitor who sustained himself at university by waiting on some of the wealthier students. He shyly joined the others in the Holy Club and became even, get this, even more excessive than they in fasts, devotions and acts of self-denial, such as kneeling in prayer all night in the rain. He stumbled across the idea of new birth in a book by a Scot named Henry Segal and exclaimed, I must be born again a new creature. Christ must be formed in me. But he still didn't understand, so he intensified his religious observances. One day he met a half-drowned woman, the wife of one of the jailbirds he visited. Desperate because she had no money to feed her children, She tried to commit suicide, but someone had pulled her out of the Thames and guilt-ridden, she had called to George for help. He cared for her immediate physical needs and agreed to meet her and her husband in prison that afternoon. He spoke to them about John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible. Suddenly the woman cried out, I believe, I believe. I shall not perish because I believe in him now. I am born again. I am saved. Her husband grasped Whitfield's hand. I'm on the brink of hell, he exclaimed. And then said, oh, I see it too. I am saved. Oh, joy, joy, joy. George was astonished. He had labored for a whole year to get right with God and failed. These two seemed to have found the way in a moment. It was not long before he found it too. He renewed his fasting to such an extent that he felt ill and collapsed. But when reading a devotional book in his room and reflecting on the crucifixion, he cried out as Jesus had done, I thirst. It was a cry of utter helplessness. He realized he could never work his way to God, but Christ had done all that he needed for forgiveness. And he had long last, thrown himself into the hands of God and he experienced the new birth. Joy unspeakable, he cried. When the Lord turned the captivity of Zion, we were like those that dream. 
Then our mouth was full of laughter and our tongue was full of singing. You see, if we want a wave of God's Spirit to come, then yes, we need to be obedient to the commission that He's given us. But what will move our hearts to that? It will be when we stop running from God and we surrender and we are gripped again by this relentless rescuing love of God. You not only need to be rescued one day, the first day when you became a Christian, you actually need to be rescued every day. Every day. You need to cling, as we sung this morning, to Christ alone. His righteousness, not my own. You need to cling to Him. Because then your joy in Him will overflow into, into joyful, sacrificial service for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You know, as I've been speaking this morning, I reckon there's some people in this room and you're in the midst of a storm and you're fleeing from the presence of God. And God wants you to come back to Him, actually surrender to Him today. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this message that we have received today. That before <laughs> Jonah could be sent with a message to rescue Nineveh, Jonah needed to be rescued from Jonah. And before we can be sent, Lord, we need to be rescued from not just our disobedience and our fleeing from your presence, but we also need to be rescued from our self-righteous reliance where we build our identity on other things other than Christ. And Lord, we, I just pray that in this moment you would remind all of us of the amazing, relentless, redeeming, rescuing love of Jesus. That when we were at our worst, not when we had cleaned ourselves up or got our act together, but when we're at our worst, you saved us. And every day we need to come back to you and just continually affirm that we are dressed in his righteousness, not our own, and humble ourselves before you. Lord, I pray that that would be the heartbeat of our church, that we would be this grace-centered church that's clinging to Jesus and his righteousness alone. Amen.